Good ingredients make good food, but big ag corporate systems dominated by global goliaths generally prioritize profit over all else, not just health and holistic wellness, but flavor. If consumers in the marketplace don't support Colorado's growers, ranchers, and other food producers, today's guest on this show, they won't survive, nor will the superior products that separate excellent cuisine from mediocre meals. For our fifth and final episode in this series, let's look at a better way forward for our culinary ecosystem. Stick around. This is State of Plate. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. All right, this is episode five of State of Plate. I'm your host, Matthew Schnipper, food and drink editor and food critic at the Colorado Springs Independent. Last episode, we spoke to three influential Colorado Springs chefs about the state of the scene today and many challenges that the industry is currently facing. In episode three, we spoke to chefs representing the new guard of talent in town. And two, we talked to members of the old guard about then and now. And it all began when I spoke with two homegrown talents that went off to good things about what they see as the state of plate from an outside viewpoint. Today, I'm going to be talking with area food producers about the importance of local food and how that impacts a vibrant culinary scene. My guests are Jennifer Gomez, CEO of Sawatch Artisan Foods, makers of high-quality European-style butters and specialty small-batch cheeses. I have Mike Calicrate, food activist, independent cattle producer, and owner of Ranch Foods Direct. We have Dan Hobbs remote with us this morning. He's a farmer and rural economic development specialist with the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. And we also have Chef David Cook from Gather Food Studio, which is a local cooking school and spice shop. I want to give each of them a moment to tell us a little bit more about themselves. Why don't we start with you, Jennifer? Sure. Great. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for having us. So really excited to share a little bit about what we're doing here with uh, Salvatore Artisan Foods, but just really briefly about me and, um, and my husband and our business. So we started Salvatore Artisan Foods back in 2018. We really wanted to focus on the small batch, the artisan production, and really doing things different than the way that our main dairy industry produces cheese on a big scale. So we started Salwatch after... A handful of conversations with some larger retailers in a particular big box store that really wanted to do a big project with us. And we realized that, you know, that really wasn't our passion. Our passion was for good food the way it used to be made, focusing on high quality. So we decided to start Sawatch Artisan Foods after that. Took us a couple years to get everything going. We didn't launch until March of 2020. It was, of course, um, the worst time to really focus on a launch of a business, especially with primarily a food service focus to get started, mostly because we weren't ready with all the retail packaging and all the things you need to really get things going. So nonetheless, we decided to shift. We went direct to consumer, really just, you know, focused on the Colorado Springs market, hit up the farmer's markets and worked with a lot of our local folks to really get the business going. So here we are, gosh, a couple of years later, we've really grown quite a bit and really excited to see where the business takes us. So cool. Mike Calicrate, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about Ranch Foods Direct? So I've got some history with Colorado Springs. We started Ranch Foods Direct in 2000. And I started Ranch Foods Direct because I, I couldn't be in the commodity cattle business anymore, the industrial model of of cattle and beef production. I chose to fight the big meat packers, uh, saw them as manipulating the markets and and really hurting producers uh, by reducing their share of the consumer dollar. And so in order to stay in the cattle business, I had to to get in the meat business. And so I started Ranch Foods Direct in in 2000, came to Colorado Springs because this is where GNC Packing Company was, a, a really great little small 
slaughter facility. And as time passed, they went out of business. So we started slaughtering our own animals on site on our farm in St. Francis, Kansas, and and, and bringing carcasses here uh, to Colorado Springs. But we've always worked very, very hard to, to create the alternative to the big industrial model. And it paid off during COVID. Uh, we had some of our best years, and so did our restaurant customers. Thankfully, we didn't run out of product because we own our supply chain. And our restaurants had a, had a really good run during COVID, just quickly moving to curbside pickup. You know, along with that comes reduction in staff and, and expenses. And so uh, we, we've gotten along pretty good. But I continue to realize how hard it is to really impose the better food system on a broader scale because we're coming up against market power. We're coming up against political power, big money power. Uh, of the big companies who aren't going to die easily. Yeah, and I want to definitely talk about that today more. Um, we should tell people too, so you have two retail marketplaces, the market on Fillmore and Hancock, and then you also have the... We have the town center location, which is our main processing plant where we bring in our carcasses and cut them up, but also it's a, it's a food hub. So we house the Southern Colorado virtual farmer's market. We, we house Biteable Foods, which is our uh, shipping and mail order platform. We also house Mountain Pie Company, Matt Campbell, uh, that makes his mountain pies there. Mm-hmm. And we also uh, provide a, a pickup for Ahava Farms. The, the CSA out at Peyton comes in every Friday with two or 300 people. Right. It's pretty awesome. So, yeah, we, we do everything we can at that town center location, not only just a retail store mm-hmm. for, for customers to come in anytime they want, but, but we really want to try to make it the hub of, of local regional food and, and build from there bigger. Awesome. Dan Hobbs, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, where you are growing, what you're doing, and a little bit more about the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union? You bet. I'm a fifth-generation Coloradan, but I grew up in Denver, and uh, I've been on kind of a lifelong pursuit to teach myself to be a farmer. Uh, I got my start as an apprentice working on farms in northern New Mexico. Wanted to move back to Colorado in the early 2000s. Selected Pueblo County for its uh, excellent agricultural conditions. Uh, we farmed in the Avondale Boone area for about 20 years. We are seed growers, produce growers, and grain growers. And uh, alongside of our farming operation, I've maintained a job with the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, working in Colorado, New Mexico, and Wyoming, helping organize uh, rural business of all kinds, uh, but particularly farmer-rancher cooperatives. I started working in the Colorado Springs area in 99, and uh, with a real interesting effort and collaboration with the Chef's Collaborative, and um, sponsored some food forums over the years to try to get better organized in, in Springs in El Paso County. And, uh, and that's all been a, a pretty interesting journey. And then also, lastly, I'll just add, um, our, our farm is uh, Hobbs and Meyer Farm, and we market under the DBA Pueblo Seed and Food Company. We did recently move from Pueblo County because we were having difficulty keeping our, some of our seed lines pure with a lot of the field corn that's grown in the area. So we've recently moved over to the Cortez area to an isolated farm, and we're in our uh, first season farming over here. Oh, cool. Congrats. All right. Last guest for today, uh, David Cook from Gather Food Studio. You are currently an educator, but also a chef. So tell me a little bit more about your early chefing career and how you got to this cooking school. I've been a chef for 25 years now, and I moved to Colorado Springs in 2014. And what I initially realized, you know, rather quickly is this town is set up into many quadrants and there's not a lot of, uh, 
connection between these quadrants. And uh, you, you realize very quickly that people are in their own in their own neighborhoods, and there's not a lot of of overlap. And so, uh, my girlfriend and I, in 2018, we opened Gather Food Studio, which is uh, which is a cooking school, but it's also a neighborhood community where we connect uh, people with people. With food as the common denominator. You have a spice market. You have a beehive there. You've got like a lot more going on too as a retail producer, right? We do, but we like to. In- integrate local producers, food makers, growers as well, and introduce those to the community. Because a lot of times we see that, that even though that these people are growing, you know, right in our neighborhoods or right in our backyards, a lot of our customers are unfamiliar with them. You're right. There's a lot of those local producers that unless you're at the farmer's market, you don't know that name, that family name, that label. Hey, Dan, don't you sell your garlic to some of the nurseries in the springs? Yeah. Rick's Garden Center, for example, has been a longtime customer. And actually, Mike and Ranch Foods Direct was uh, was probably our very first customer for our seeds. I, I actually planted your garlic this season in my yard. <laughs> I just harvested <laughs> nice. that last week. It's nice to have those community connections. If you've been around in the springs for a little while, I, I got here in 97. These are some of the names you know. Like I loved getting to know the farmers' names, the the people who are the growers. And I think more and more people are tuning into that and, and caring about where their food's coming from, which is getting me back to the, the premise this morning. The premise of this whole show is just an examination of the Colorado Springs food scene. Where are we now? What do we need? How do we get there? In the last episodes, we've heard from a lot of chefs and restaurateurs, people inside the industry. And today, I just wanted to examine behind the scenes what people might not be thinking about, what your average consumer isn't thinking about sometimes when they eat that burger is where did the beef come from? And a lot of the times, people just don't think about it. Recently, people have started caring a lot more. I want today to be about where in our region does good quality food come from and why does that so often distinguish the great restaurants, the ones that are using good products that have great food? David, this is a maybe just an obvious question, but when I talk to chefs over the years, good ingredients make good food, right? Absolutely. So I think that if you have lived here for any amount of years, you'll know that corporate restaurants have kind of dominated this town. With the growth of Colorado Springs, we're starting to see a lot of more independent restaurants opening. And within those independent restaurants, I think that there is a a passion to use local ingredients to make your food exponentially better, especially with COVID and the supply chain breakdown. Mm-hmm. People were looking at smaller houses and smaller independent growers and producers in order to continue with their, their food productions, continue with being able to put plates out and feed people. And so that's why I think it's really important that we have this great local food scene. We've been working with Jennifer and Sawatch carrying their products. We've been working with local mushroom growers. The true and Microvora, right? Right, yeah, and Austin Brinker with Fungus Farm. Nice. Bringing in local honey, those kinds of things. And I think that that's really important for the overall sustainability of the food scene in Colorado Springs. We have so many people coming to the Springs area that are new. I don't think a lot of people even know what grows here. Can you run down the list real quick, Dan? Like, educate the average person about what Colorado can produce. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, Colorado is an agricultural state. I think a a lot of people don't understand this, but, you know, we're we're referred oftentimes as the headwater state, and we've got these magnificent watersheds 
uh, and these agricultural areas are really defined by the rivers that flow through them and, and the land that that water irrigates. Of course, we've got dryland agriculture going on in a few places too, out in the four corners with bean production, dry bean production, and on the eastern plains, sunflowers and primarily wheat. Colorado's a pretty big uh, wheat producer. We can grow just about anything. You know, I was surprised when I first moved to Pueblo and, and was experimenting with things and, and uh, had a wonderful crop of sweet potatoes. And this was in... Uh, 2002, you know, those really, really dry years, and it turns out sweet potatoes don't need much water, and I left them in the ground too long, and they grew to the size of footballs. Uh, so there are just an incredibly wide range of uh, fresh produce, uh, stone fruit. Our agricultural districts are kind of um, defined by their crops. Of course, in the Arkansas Valley, we're known for uh, what we call wet-seeded crops. These are squashes, melons, peppers, tomatoes, uh, a lot of hot weather items. Uh, up in the San Luis Valley, cool weather country, some of the finest potatoes in the world mm. uh, and very prized for the seed potatoes up there because a lot of insects can't uh, make it through those cold winters. Also traditionally a grain producing region, barley, uh, wheat and rye. Then you go over to the Four Corners, primarily beans, but also historically a fruit district. The Western Slope, stone fruits, actually where a lot of communities lost their fruit this year, Peonia, Hotchkiss, Palisade, uh, Delta County. All these places have great crops of sweet cherries and peaches, apples, a little bit of pears. And then Weld County, gosh, one of the biggest agricultural counties in the country, grows a, a host of crops. So we're incredibly well endowed with the uh, uh, diversity of crops in Colorado. And, and as I understand it, about 95% of that food leaves the state. Oh, wow. And we also have, what, four viticultural areas for wine growers, right? Right. Good. Yeah. yeah. And some hops as well. Well, thanks for running down that list. Yeah. It's amazing what we can do here. And jumping to, to Mike and Jennifer, they're both located actually in Kansas. You're in St. Francis. Northwest area, right? That's right. We're, we're 12 miles inside of Kansas. And the front range is our urban center. Right. It's like this is the closest market that makes sense to sell to. It's twice as far to Kansas City as it is to Denver right. and Colorado Springs. And then Jennifer, yep. you were in the southwest. Yep. We're in Hugoton, Kansas. So similar region to where Mike's at, a little bit farther south. We still think of you as locals because, again, this is your marketplace and this is a, a close distribution center. Jennifer, when I first met you, you told me a great sustainable thing that was happening just in the, in the way you're modeling your business and helping farmers. Can you walk us through that real quick? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So strategically, we placed our primary business when my husband started our first business, um, really focused more on the mid manufacturing of ingredients. So for a long time, since 2012, when he started that business, it was really focused on the custom ultra filtered blends of ingredients. So we would sell foundational bases for different cheeses or coffee creamers, that sort of thing, which we're still doing that business today. But as we continued to grow and look at how we wanted to grow the business, and we started Sawatch Artisan Foods to really focus on the small batch artisan production, you know, adding a new space to our facility, hiring a cheesemaker, and really focus on those handcrafted techniques. We realized as part of that, we really wanted to focus on the water. For us, it was important to do the best um, that you can with the resources that you have. So an example is that before we put our facility in Hugoton, Kansas, there's a lot of dairy production in the area. So that's one reason why we really focused on that area. There's a lot of milk there. And prior to us forming our business and being able to manufacture the milk in that area, all of that milk was being produced 
put on tanker trucks to the nearest manufacturing facility. Cows drink quite a bit of water, and most of that water ends up in the milk that they produce. So you're sending that milk, you know, thousands of miles away. Obviously, there's diesel and there's, you know, fossil fuel emissions and all that comes with that. But more importantly, you're losing the water. And as we know that with the Ogallala Aquifer, there's not a whole lot of water being refilled into that, and there's, there's not a lot of water sustainability there. So we really wanted to focus on, you know, how do we keep the water in that part of the country? How do we replenish what's being lost? So when we take that milk in from our local dairy farmers, there's a couple of different parts of the process. We produce things like ultra-filtered skim milk, and we, you know, we can separate the cream, and we can do some cool things. But what we can really do with the water is we can actually extract quite a bit of the water during some of our processes. We take that water, we fully clean and treat it, so with a full UV um, kind of treatment system. We take that water, and then we exclusively use that water to clean our facilities, so we're not pulling any water out of the city and out of the aquifer, out of the wells. So once we go through the manufacturing process, it's obviously it's a lot of cleaning because you've got a whole lot of stainless steel, so you need a whole lot of water to clean it. Um, so once you clean that, uh, clean all that equipment, the water was just going down the drain and then went into the city with a water treatment system that we helped facilitate the build for. Well, several years ago, we decided we're going to make the investment to create another uh, secondary part of that water cleaning system and water treatment system. So now once that water goes down the drain, we recapture it a second time and we put it through another treatment system. So we have two tanks that we constructed on the outside of our facility. So it goes through the natural biological process where obviously you can start to clean that water. And then we built about a mile and a half pipeline that goes underground and it goes to our local crop farmer that's been farming in the area, you know, family over a hundred some years. And so we send that water to a lagoon that we constructed on his facility. And then he exclusively uses that water, especially in the summer when there's not a lot of rain. It is a semi-arid region of the country. So you're not getting a ton of rainfall. So he's using that water exclusively to water all of his crops. So it's really a win-win. Those crops also go right back to the dairy farmer who uses that for the milk production in the areas. Last year, we've been able to reclaim 48 million gallons of water. So pretty proud of that. We won the EPA Region 7 uh, Pollution Prevention Award for a couple of years in a row. I love that. Imagine if every producer was operating with a sustainable model like that. Like, what better world would we be living in right now? Think about the slaughterhouses down there in Garden City, close to where Jennifer's at. They're yeah. using around 720 gallon of water per animal slaughtered. Oh, yeah. And then compare that to our facility at St. Francis, Kansas, where we'll use between 30 and 50 gallons per animal slaughtered. Wow. And how do you do that? What's well, your method? we've got a very simple slaughter process. You know, we've been slaughtering cattle kind of the same way for 10,000 years. It's it's not like it's something new and high-tech or anything. And, and if you've got good, highly skilled people or people just willing to learn, you can really conserve on a lot of this. But the big use of water for the big plants is the size of their facilities and the fact they have to clean them down every 24 hours. So they, they have two shifts of slaughter and one shift of cleanup, which is where most of the water gets utilized. But also during the shift, during the, a slaughter shift, they're going to go through a ton of water. It, it, there's water running all the time. And it's just not necessary in a plant like ours that goes slower and, and, and just cares more about, you know, if you're not getting manure on the meat, you don't, you don't have to use quite so much water. Yeah. You know, if you're not getting ingested material on the meat, I mean, but the thing about the big meat packers is they're using low-skill workers or unskilled workers. They've got a, a source of workers that are refugee workers, and they really depend on that. And, and of course, that's a model that I want to see go away. It's like human exploitation at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. And and when COVID came along, it exposed many of the wrongs in, in our food system. And unfortunately, it's back. It's back in full force. I 
mean, when you've got an administration during COVID that forced those workers back to work in those dangerous working conditions, that was terrible. That, that is something that shouldn't have happened. But it's been a real struggle, you know, for the alternative, better food system to make it with the with these kind of market predators and 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 consumers of resources. They couldn't care less when that Ogallala aquifer runs down and and it's no longer making them money. They're going to leave. It's just like Cargill and Fort Morgan or JBS and Greeley. When the resource is gone, they'll be gone because these are global multinational conglomerates. So these are like extractive vampire models. This is not mm-hmm. sustainable. What you're saying essentially is like the problem is when we go from small to big. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's industrial. We call it the industrial model of agriculture. It's really run from Wall Street or, or, or Sao Paulo, Brazil. We are dependent upon foreigners to eat now. Like Dan said, Colorado exports 95% of the food we produce and, and we are fully dependent on imports to eat. Uh, As a a nation, we're fully dependent upon imports to eat. And this is because we've got so few family farmers left. And we've got to support that that model if we want it. And otherwise, it's going to get very interesting very quickly in the future Mm -hmm. if, if we don't start supporting our local regional food systems. We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, big thanks to the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective for sponsoring State of Play. They're transforming the 100-year-old city auditorium into a 21st century cultural hub, which includes a culinary hospitality career program that will incorporate advanced food preparation skills, fine dining menu building, and training in business and resource management. Everything students need to build a successful career in the culinary arts. Learn more about this unique program at communityculturalcollective.org. Dan, is that food all spoken for? If all of our chefs and restaurateurs wanted to buy Colorado food, is it available? Great question. There is an enormous amount of food that's still coming out of the Arkansas River Valley, less than historically, uh, and but also goes for the San Luis Valley. And so Colorado Springs is in this really interesting position. You know, when you think about the the northern front range, the southern front range, and the valley in particular, it is right in the middle of some of the finest agricultural producing regions in the western United States. And there are still a goodly number of uh, let's say mid-scale family farms in the Arkansas Valley, a lot of these um, slightly larger scale family farms work with distributors because of the low population density in southeastern Colorado. And this, frankly, was always a huge conundrum for us uh, trying to access the Colorado Springs market is why we couldn't get the demand up, why we couldn't move more of this local product into the springs. And so Mike and myself and, and a number of us from the agricultural side have been working on solving that puzzle over the years, and I think we'll probably be working on it for the rest of our lives. But the short answer is yes, there there is food available uh, and personal relationships uh, with some of these farmers and some of these food hubs, these alternative distributors uh, could go a long way towards getting more of this uh, into the urban marketplaces. And so for our listeners, farmers markets may be one of the most easy and accessible places to get local food, at least seasonally for these summer months. And then I guess stores like Gather would be a place to go when you can pick up other products throughout the year that are the non-perishables. We spend a lot of time researching the ingredients and, and the products that we bring in. We spend a lot of time talking about how grocery stores don't necessarily have your best interest at heart, uh, what they have going on is is really their profit margins. And we've been tricked into thinking 
that what's on the top shelf is is the best quality and is the best for us and what's on the bottom shelf is is generally the the lesser quality but the reality is what's on the top shelf is going to be their best money maker and so we source our ingredients from around the country. We try to stay as local as possible, but we have... Phenomenal olive oil, though, and things like that that come in that are... We do. So we have uh, a Greek olive oil. We're actually the largest uh, distributor of this very small olive grove, and we don't charge an arm and a leg for our products. And, and we find that we don't need to because we want to make that connection with people and food. We want your food to be better. We want to inspire people to cook. The spices I would buy at King Supers or Safeway versus the spices that you would grind for me fresh to make like, let's say a curry blend or something. The spices in the grocery store, they're not going to taste as good, right? Your food will not taste vibrant and alive. Generally speaking, the spices at the grocery store are going to be between three to seven years old. And they're going to cost... three to four times more than what we are charging for them. And that's because the Western part of the world was built on sugar, as opposed to other parts of the world, especially in tropical zones, where where food was built and, and, and flavor was built more on natural flavors and spices. The American palate craved sugar. And, and less on spices. And so spices are, one, more expensive, and two, since we have a tendency to use less, they're a lot older. Mm-hmm. And that's terrible for the consumer because spices are full of volatile oils. And once those oils release into the air, you're, you're really just, at that point, buying sawdust, you know, <laughs> or, or a very compromised uh, version of, of what you could get. And so... What Gather does is we source our spices from all over the world. We keep everything nice and fresh, mm-hmm. and we grind everything to order because we want everything to be optimal flavor-wise for you when you get it. You know, we've heard from lots of people that you have to use a lot less of our spices in your yeah. food at home. What David just said about spices is true in the meat industry as well. We went through a, a period here this summer when it got really hot and we lost a lot of cattle. The heat stress hit hit Kansas and central Kansas mostly, and a lot of cattle died. And, and you think, well, well, why? Why did that happen? Well, because they're being produced industrially. An accountant is really running the thing. They're worried about return on investment. You know, we talk about the distributors. You know, Cisco is earning a 45% return on equity for the last five or six years on average while the farmer goes bankrupt. And so they're forced into this trap of being the low-cost producer because they can't get a profit out of it because they don't have enough market power to get a profit. So there are costs to be reduced. Well, what happens? Well, you, you start using performance han- enhancing drugs. And this led directly to that cattle loss. They use a beta agonist, which makes cattle much more susceptible to heat. It also makes cattle much bigger than they genetically normally would have been. And so their, their lungs, their hearts, their livers, all their organs can't keep up with the size of the animal. Well, because this big feedlot has a sweetheart deal with the big meat packer and is part of that supply chain and, and is essentially guaranteed not to lose money, now they got too many cattle in the pen. And, and so now there's not enough water available for the cattle that are in the pen. There's not enough air movement around the cattle. So when the heat hits, man, we got a huge 
problem. And it was reported that 25,000 cattle died that week. Mm. And of course, now it's gone quiet. You're not going to hear about cattle deaths now. Yeah, because no one charged any animal cruelty charges, Mm. did they? Yes, exactly. That was extremely embarrassing to to the industry. But it's just an example of how wrong this industrial model is. Well, take Calicrate, for example. When I decided we had to sell meat instead of livestock, well, I'm not going to produce what the big packers are producing. I'm going to use an Angus cow. I'm going to breed it to a Wagyu bull so I can get the marbling. I'm not going to use performance-enhancing drugs ever. It reduces tenderness. It reduces flavor in the meat. I'm going to slaughter on site, so now I've eliminated the stress issue and the dark cutters and the problems that come with high stress in, in slaughter. We're transporting the carcasses as carcasses, not as box beef. So now we have a safer product because dry age is what makes beef safe. It, it's that six to seven days of dry age that addresses the pathogen problem that the box beef continues to have and will always have mm-hmm. as long as they pack it within 24 to 36 hours and after slaughter. box beef for the listener who may not know what that term means? Well, the big packers got big because of box beef. They, they were able to slaughter on one day and box it the next or cut it up and put it in primal packages, vacuum package, and, and in a box and ship it out to retailers. Of course, they had to bribe the retailers and the unions <laughs> to be able to put box beef in the market because the bottom line is carcass beef is way better than box beef. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gets back to what makes our beef better. It's aged properly. And, of course, that adds to tenderness. That adds to flavor and quality. And then, of course, we sell it direct to the consumer in our retail stores. So it's a much shorter pathway from production to consumption mm-hmm. as opposed to what you all were just saying about the distance between the producer and the consumer. It could mm-hmm. be thousands of miles. And, and the product might travel a lot, actually a lot further than that by the time it gets processed and handed around and distributed. And we get people that say, you know, you know Mike, that, that your beef takes me back 40 years, a guy from Texas. In fact, the recording's on our website if you go to Ranch Foods Direct. And the guy says, I just couldn't believe it. He said it was like getting a time machine and going back 40 years. That's the, uh, that was incredible how good that ribeye was, mm-hmm. the way we produce our livestock. Our chuck eye eats better than the other guy's filet, mm-hmm. and it's a third of the price. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, we try to be affordable. We want to be able to serve families. And we have all income levels that shop at our stores. Jennifer, for flavor, when it comes to the dairy side, tell us yeah. about the butter and the European style, yeah. uh, like how that translates from the, the cheapest butter I'm going to buy again at the big box store to with the flavor I'm going to get from your product. I think that we all share a similar story, whether it's spices or whether it's, um, it's Mike's um, beef. But from a butter standpoint, almost all the butter that you find at the grocery store, just your normal store brand, you know, Sticks of four-ounce butter, they're all pretty much produced the same way. So you have a manufacturing facility that buys a bunch of pre-processed cream from all over the country. They bring all of that in, basically mix it up all together in one big silo. You blast it with high-heat pasteurization, and then it immediately goes into an industrial continuous churn which doesn't actually churn the butter. It kind of mimics the churning process, but rather than actually physically churning it, it, it creates butter within a matter of seconds. Hmm. So you get this, um, you know, this butter that's pushed almost what looks like almost like a cheese grater, just kind of pushes the cream through and becomes butter. From there, it immediately goes on to bulk packaging and it goes right off to the distributor and onto the grocery store. So butter is pretty much um, made with an 80% butter fat content, one to 2% milk solids and the rest of it's water. And that is American butter, 80% butter fat. The difference with European-style butter is that pretty much the rest of the world recognizes an 82% 
butterfat as the minimum. Most of Europe and some places, you know, even higher than that. Um, but 82% is the minimum. And while that 2% seems like it's not very much, it is. it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah as, as you can speak to, it makes, it makes a huge difference. You know, that extra butterfat really just um, creates a different texture and flavor profiles. What makes our process a little bit different is that we start with the fresh, raw local milk from our dairy farmers. We bring that into our facility. We do the separation from the cream and the skim milk. We take that cream. We do a cold bowl separation and then a vat pasteurization. So the vat pasteurization is a much lower and slower pasteurization process, and it takes a little bit longer. So it helps to preserve the cream. And then we actually ripen that cream for about 16 hours before we put it into our batch churn. And the batch churn is truly a churn. I mean, it looks like a, a big clothes dryer. You fill it up with cream, and it just starts to spin around the same speed. And it takes about 45 minutes or so. And then we check the product at that point. It kind of breaks, and you get your butter, and then you get some buttermilk and, um, and all of that. We'll check it again. We actually rinse it with cold water, and we churn it again, which helps it to compact even more and become even higher butterfat. So you basically rinse more of the buttermilk out. We actually capture some of that buttermilk fresh from the churn, which is something that you really can't find anywhere. Um, and we really just do that for a handful of our local restaurants. Where else can we buy it as a consumer? We have their butter, but we also have this Greek Gouda. It is hands down the most incredible cheese I have ever tasted in my life. Wow. Oh. That's, that's a lot coming from the <laughs> chef. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that's, that's not, I didn't, no one paid you to say that today, right? I didn't see any money. Yeah, I've always <laughs> got that Gouda in my refrigerator. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and, and we sell all of Jennifer's stuff at, at Ranch Foods Direct at both yep. locations. Okay. Yeah. So it's both available at Ranch Foods Direct and, and Gather. Yep. Are you in any other local markets at the moment? Yeah. So a bread and butter neighborhood market bread and downtown. Butter, downtown. So yeah. It's a great location. Um, also, if you go to the Sourdough Boulangerie off Omaha, you can visit Sean, okay. pick up some of his awesome bread, and grab Sean's some butter along also with it too. At Ranch food, so yep. we've got a little overlap today. This is like community happening right now. Absolutely, right. You know, even going back to what Jennifer was saying about the difference between eighty to eighty-two to eighty-four percent butterfat with different amounts of water versus fat. So we use Sawatch in in our baking classes, and the difference is steam versus fat when you're baking. And then the way that, that, that the steam rises really makes a difference in the overall taste and flavor and flakiness of, of different pastries and baked goods because fat's going to give you more of a creamy, more of a, a better texture where steam is just water which is, you know, escaping. It doesn't have that, that same remnant of flavor. So, Dan, we're talking about flavor now as it pertains to dairy, to meat, to spices, but tell me about the flavors that are available in local produce versus big agriculture versions of these same products. Yeah, there's a, a couple of pieces there, Matthew. One is the quality of the soil, the quality of the agricultural region. I mean, good flavors come from well-tended agricultural land. So uh, whether it's an organic farmer, a biodynamic farmer, a conventional farmer, regenerative farmer, if there's a good quality soil, there's likely going to be a good tasting produce. Now, a lot of uh, what makes Colorado produce special, too, is the cool nights. Uh, mm -hmm. You look at the Arkansas Valley, for example, and these hot days and these cool nights is the secret, as the Rocky Ford melon growers will tell you or the Pueblo chili growers uh, especially when you get into the month of September and you have these incredible diurnal uh, temperature swings. So, uh, and then there's also the, the quality of the water. You know, we 
are all fortunate here, many of us, to irrigate uh, pretty high on the watershed, and so we're using clean mountain water in many cases. So water, soil temperatures, all these things impact flavor, uh, but also seeds and the genetics of the crops themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in our seed program, for example, we've been really working on uh, selecting crops that have good flavor. Not all crops have good flavor. And so we, uh, we cook with these things and we screen them and, and the stuff that doesn't have the good flavor, we let go from our program. But the other thing is distribution. Uh, when these uh, items are coming from industrial farms, for example, in um, California or Mexico or South America, uh, they've traveled many miles and they've lost nutrients, they've lost flavor, they've lost some of that life force. And mm -hmm. so the longer those, uh, the older those foods are, many of these uh, things that Cisco delivers, they're just not going to be as flavorful as something you get fresh from the local region. For anyone who doesn't understand it, like, tell, tell us about seed sovereignty and why is seed saving so important to you? Big question. I'll, I'll try to be uh, concise here. But some of these same dynamics that Mike's talking about with an, an industrial production in the cattle and beef industry apply to seed. And uh, seed has been uh, privatized faster than any natural resource in the world. Uh, if you think about timber, minerals, all, all these natural resources that fuel our economy. Seed was, with the hybridization of corn in the early 1900s, it began to shift into an industrial controlled enterprise. Historically, farm communities produced and saved their own open pollinated varieties. When we switched over to hybrids, farmers tended towards yield, and this was pushed by the extension service and of course people in the industry itself and many folks have heard monsanto and Bayer and uh, syngenta these large seed companies control up to 50 percent of the uh, vegetable seed probably has surpassed that by now and so we've we have a huge loss of uh, biodiversity on our hands we have uh, farm communities that have let go of traditional varieties that were adapted to their regions and that, in particular, is a big problem with climate change. Adapted seed, diversified seed, people who know how to save seed is going to be a key tool in the box for confronting climate change as we go along here. And, and this has really influenced a lot of our thinking. And, and when we've had these hot days and these huge water events, we've really looked towards seeds that can handle these natural swings as an important part of our production. And so we're, we're working on drought tolerant seeds, heat tolerant seeds in particular. And again, these kind of things are going to be critical going forward. And we just don't have the amount of public investment or private investment in these open pollinated seeds. And so it's really in the hands of a diversified group of farmers. And so when you talk about seed sovereignty, these are the people to look towards, farmers themselves and, and local communities and not big business. David, you had a question for Mike. Mike, going back to your aging process and talking about dry aging, one thing that we talk about a lot in our classes is wet aging, and it just makes me madder than hell because wet aging is, is just, I believe, a form of, of marketing that is essentially meaningless. And so what we tell people that wet aging is, is when you get that whole pork loin or the tenderloin or even your beef tenderloin that's packed in 
and the cryovac. That's essentially wet aging. It doesn't do anything for the product except extend its shelf life. And so when you're talking about the larger companies, the Cargills, the JBS, how does that wet aging impact the flavor of the meat when it gets here? Because a lot of times when we go to different big box grocery stores, you're seeing meat that is almost the color of veal now. It's milky white. It doesn't have that nice dark red color that it used to. David, you're just getting back to the box beef thing. And, and one of the things that I really would love to see go away is, is box beef. I, I want to go back 50 years to where small meat packers, small, medium-sized, regional-type meat packers were selling to grocery stores and directly as, in carcasses. And, of course, we've de-skilled the industry. The, the people don't exist anymore that can actually cut up a carcass into the retail cuts like we do at Ranch Foods Direct. We really struggle with staffing. And when we get somebody really well-trained, they go to New Hampshire or to Great Falls, Montana, and open up their own meat shop, which I think is awesome. But we need to continue to train and teach. But box beef is, is given the industry the ability to de-skill and to, and to hire cheaper labor. But wet aging, it's still in the box. They put it in the box within 24 or so hours after slaughter. And, of course, they're going to say, well, it just ages in the bag as it goes. But it doesn't really compare to a dry-age product that is in a controlled dry age setting with the right humidity and the right temperatures. It's just a shortcut and it fits the industrial model. And so Cisco and the and the US Foods and the and the big food service companies are going to promote that as something that's going to really benefit the restaurant they're selling to. But it's kind of like, you know, you should never refreeze anything. Well they also promoted that to make sure you had to keep buying continuously all the time and you could throw away a lot of good food perhaps. I did a piece, it's on my blog about getting out of the box. And I just have a passion for getting out of the box. Stop the wet aging excuses for, you know, well, we're going to bag it, it'll last longer. But how often do you open those bags and it's, and it's a pretty foul smell that, that comes out of that bag? Well, the problem is, is they're bagging the bacteria and the pathogens along with the meat when they package it so close to slaughter. And it's the dry age we've always, for centuries, depended upon to make the meat safer. So I just went to the grocery store the other day. I was doing a class on meat buying and seafood buying, and I bought a whole array of different meats at different price points. And what I saw at the at the lower price point level for ground beef is if you turn the package over, it actually has ingredients on it now. So it's ground beef, with other added flavors is, is what that what you call pink slime these oh. days? Other added flavors? Or <laughs> pink slime is back, right, Mike? You said it's back. Oh, it's fully back. Pink slime's back 100%. In fact, I got a call from a food writer one day, and she says, Mike, why is there beef flavoring in beef? And I said, well, because beef the way we produce it, it doesn't, doesn't have much flavor. You know, when we, you talked about the color, it looks like veal, you know, and and I said, well, they're adding chemical flavorings to make yeah. it taste like beef. Beef has sort of gone the way of pork and poultry in that factory industrial type model of production. And yeah. it's really compromised the, the quality. We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, I'd like to thank these underwriters for making this podcast possible. Downtown Colorado Springs, home of the largest concentration of independent restaurants in Southern Colorado, is proud to sponsor State of Plate and support the passionate individuals who make the food and beverage industry a cultural highlight in our lives. And the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance, 
Good beer requires good water, and lots of it. That's why the Fountain Creek Brewshed Alliance brings together water resource experts and brewing industry professionals to spark conversations about protecting our watershed. Visit fountain-crk.org to find a liquid lecture at your favorite local brewery. So what else did you see when you were going shopping at the grocery store? I'm not going to pick out any singular big box grocery stores. You should uh, name yeah. names. Yeah. I have never not named names. That's true. But, uh, <laughs> we're naming names. But anybody can guess, right? Right. They're the only ones left standing. There's two major grocery stores in town, so you know, take right. your pick. Right. Right. But uh, with what Mike just said, with poultry and with pork, what you're starting to see, and seafood, but, but that's a whole different animal, literally. Yeah, uh, land and sea and all that stuff. But. <laughs> with poultry, even chicken breast, you buy a package of chicken breast, it'll say up to 12% solution. And then there's these things now, water-added products, where you're getting ham, you know, for example. It's a great deal you're getting a pound of a ham steak for... Three ninety nine, and then it says ham and water product, and a normal consumer doesn't know what that is. But if you look it up, you know, by definition, it only has to have 10 to 17% protein and then up to 37% solution. And so you're, one, getting these meats that are compromised in flavor. Two, they're just packed full of solution to to give them extra flavor. It's like white rice that's enriched. You know, mm. you take it out of the hole, and then you spray on all of the nutrients again, right. right? And then also now your meat and your chicken, you know, it doesn't get the same color and the same flavor production because it is pumped with all of these solutions and chemicals that prevent it from actually browning during the cooking Which, like, process. begs the ultimate question, are we actually eating food anymore? Exactly. What are we eating? I, I can tell you who's winning. And, and Dan, don't feel like I stalked you on this one, but the person who's winning, we just talked about grocery stores, is, is actually Dan, because I, I'm going to read something you wrote recently on your Facebook page. You wrote, one of the enduring pleasures of country life is that every meal, every day of the year is guided by what is coming out of the field, root cellar, freezer, or jar, going on six years now of barely setting foot in a grocery store. I love that. <laughs> so you're kind of winning, Dan, with not going into the grocery stores, it sounds like. So how do you do it? How do you achieve that lifestyle? Yeah. A lot of this is just the internal commerce that happens between farmers and ranchers, too. Knowing people like Mike, knowing where to source things if we don't produce it. But when you start with the seed, as we do, we have great amount of control over what we grow every year. Some of this is for us. Some of it is for national seed companies and local seed sales like Mike's store and Buckley's and Rick's, as I mentioned, we've really focused on storage crops as part of the deal. You know, things like um, uh, Rosa di Milano onion, for example, open pollinated heirloom onion from Italy that will store for 12, 13 months, varieties of shallots and garlic that'll store for up to 17 months. So we've put in the time to screen these crops for storage, but also really importantly for flavor. The trade economy that exists among other farmers and ranchers is just so satisfying. You know, there's a nourishing side to it, not only for the body, but for the spirit and the community itself. And it is true. And my wife is also a dietitian and, and is a big believer in staying out of these stores as well. And so it's, it's become pretty easy not to set foot in these, uh, these grocery stores. Dare I ask, do you even go out to eat at restaurants anymore or is it kind of the same story? Well, you know, I, I continue to try 
to eat at restaurants in different communities, but I've largely been disappointed and uh, it, it's, it seems like it's hard to scare up a good meal. Of course, I take the long view and, and I always ask when I set foot in these places, what's local on the menu and whatever it is, I'll tend to order that if there is anything local on the menu. Mike, you and I recently talked about pricing on ground beef and how your price point for yours is you're saying not that much higher than what than what the other guys could sell it for. Places like Drifters prove that model. They they use your beef. They're they're almost like a fast food style burger in town and if their model works. What's keeping everyone else from buying your beef then? I think what's keeping people from buying their beef in, in the restaurant industry is Cisco. The companies like Cisco that say, look, if you're going to buy your ground beef from Calicrate, you're going to have to buy your napkins from him too and everything else. And they're really predatory. And when I go into a restaurant that might be getting ready to open and they say, ah, oh, we're going to use your beef. We know it'll fill seats if we tell people that we use your product. And then weeks later, you find out, well, they're not going to buy our beef. Well, Cisco has been there and threatened them and, in fact, gave them a $3,000 kickback. Those words are accurate, a kickback. And then a year later, they're higher than we are. But the deal is beef, meat in general, is the highest priced thing a restaurant buys. And so when you've got a food service company like Cisco that's making 45% return on their equity, they're coming in and, and they can't afford to lose the protein part of that business. They've got to keep that in order to generate those kind of returns and make their shareholders happy. And so they're going to fight. They're going to predatory price. And they've got this amazing thing that they do. If they lower the price in order to put me out of a restaurant, they can automatically increase the price on everything else the restaurant buys in order to maintain margin. Salesmen don't get paid if they don't maintain margin. And so it's really a swindle. And, and I'd love to see the Federal Trade Commission look into it because it's cheating. And restaurant operators don't realize that. But like Dan says, he doesn't go to retail stores to buy food. I don't either. And the customers that we have don't go there either. They pretty much you know, between Jennifer and Ahava Farm and Ranch Foods Direct, why would you ever want to buy food at a King Supers, a Safeway, a Walmart, a Costco, or any of those kinds of places that, that we don't like their practices? We really have a very difficult time getting into even the independent restaurants that buy from big food service. And these are the big food service companies that shorted restaurants during COVID and really were a huge reason for them going out of business. Uh, where our restaurants with Ranch Foods Direct, we never ran out, not once. Mm -hmm. We have our own supply chains. It's resilient. It's dependable. It's sustainable. We just do everything we can to do things right. And, and we never let a customer down. And Jennifer, like, what's your experience as you've approached the independent restaurants or other shops with your product? What kind of resistance have you seen? From our standpoint, we, similar to Mike, we, we do kind of have our own holistic supply chain. So we have our own logistics from our facility. We have our own reefer trucks. We have our own very small team that do local deliveries. And so similar to your experience during COVID, our restaurants that were starting to order some of our butter, when they got back into the swing of things, we never ran out of product. We always had plenty for them. Now, similar to restaurants on our side from a butter standpoint, bakeries. We know bakeries typically use a ton of butter. It's probably one of the largest items that they're buying outside of, you know, flour, sugar, and all the other things. But we found some similar resistance from the 
big distributors there. You know, if, if we approached a large bakery that uses a high, high volume of butter, for example, and we say, hey, we can get you this butter. It's a higher quality at basically around the same price that you're paying now because we're cutting out all the middlemen. So we can get you a better product at the same price. And they're like, well, I'd love to do that. I love your product. But the problem is if I do that, my main distributor is basically going to cut me off. So, you know, they're in this really uncomfortable situation as well, because obviously they still need the napkins or they still need the flour, they need the sugar, and they, they can't be in a position where they can't source those things. So it does make it difficult for us coming in, even though we have a better product at a better price, to be able to get in through those standard distribution methods. It can be tough. So we've definitely seen our own version of, of that resistance. I think from a restaurant standpoint, it's been a little bit easier because obviously we're not the meats coming in, you know, with the, the highest uh, price point item on the menu. So we have been able to get a lot of our butter and some cheeses into some of the local restaurants. So that one, we haven't encountered as much resistance. This is interesting because what you were just talking about threads back to something we, we talked about in episode one. Shane was pointing out that we go across the country and wherever you eat, you're actually eating the same product. It's the same cheese. It's the same iceberg lettuce that flew in. It's not localized. It has no local flavor like what Dan's talking about. And as we lament the Springs food scene and how it needs to grow and do better and where it can go, one barrier to it getting better is sounds like the distributors themselves keeping independent owners from being able to buy the better product through this threatening model you're talking about. Oh, if you do that, then we'll pull this. But then my mind goes to, okay, well, what's happening in the bigger cities, whether it's the Denver or the Chicago or whatever, if they have a more mature food scene, how are those chefs and restaurants getting around that and still using the good products? Or is it just at that point, you're willing to pay the price and you'll, and you'll take the hit on your napkins and flour in order to get the good stuff? Well, Matt, it's not good anywhere. Uh, these are national companies, Cisco, U.S. Foods, and these big national companies are doing the same thing all over the country. And my good friend, uh, Greg Gunthorpe in LaGrange, Indiana, has worked with Rick Bayless now for 20, over 20 years. And Rick Bayless has the Mexican Concepts restaurants in, in Chicago. And it's just so loyal to local, so loyal to Greg's high-quality pasture-raised pork. And so that account has remained solid. But, man, Greg has lost most of his other business because of this predatory pricing model that the big food service companies are using. And so it's no better in any other city in the country. Colorado Springs is, is just typical of what's going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, but the real difference in Colorado Springs is, you know, the Pass Food Nation book there, Exhausta wrote 20-some years ago, was really a story about Colorado Springs and as being a fast food city. And Colorado Springs has always embraced the sort of Wall Street chain franchise model of business, which made them stand out more. Uh, as being more of a supporter of the industrial food model. But Colorado Springs really goes even further, though, from the city perspective. I think they'd rather support a national chain than they would a small business. That's my feeling of being an independent business person in Colorado Springs is, Mm -hmm. is the city itself makes it very hard for small independent businesses to do business. But I think the same bad food is everywhere. And and I dread traveling. I don't want to go anywhere. Uh, I had the pleasure of going to Dan and Nana's grain school in, in Alamosa a couple weeks ago and, and took the trip over to Durango where I got to eat a hamburger at the James Ranch Market and Grill, which was totally awesome. 
But there's so few of those kinds of places that control their ingredients and Mm -hmm. produce the product and provide it to the consumer. And if we're going to have more of that, we've got to support that. And in Colorado Springs, we do not support that model at all here from the city itself. You know, I think back over the years on everything we've been through in kind of Pueblo County, El Paso County, trying to put together a more local food system. And I used to believe that you could work with some of these broadline distributors, let's, let's call them, that you could make some deals and, and, and kind of carve out a space for local food. And then we had what we thought were some benevolent purveyors like Bon Appetit and Well, the lessons pointed towards disappointment after disappointment, you know, trying to uh, form those relationships. And I really came to the conclusion, I think, along with Mike, that we just have to build our own alternative systems. And so that happens, you know, at at the independent business level, whether it's a store, a restaurant, a farm, a ranch, but also collectively in what we do together. And so along with Mike, we Oh, gosh, maybe around 2014, we started really focusing on the distribution and making some uh, headway with with uh, what we call food hubs. And the definition for anybody that doesn't know, a food hub is a is a type of business that sources from lots of different independent local vendors and distributes out to lots of different customers. And so we've got uh, Mike really runs a type of food hub. And then we've also got Valley Roots Food Hub that's based in the San Luis Valley and has really, uh, you know, finally surpassed a million dollars in gross sales here last year and is becoming a going concern and really keeps a lot of us tied together. They're not only transporting local goods between farm communities, but uh, into lots of other urban areas. And so these are different than your typical distributors. They're not going to carry napkins and forks and things along those lines, but uh, they are becoming the place to go for fresh aggregated uh, food. So We've got a win there. We've got a solution with these food hubs that's really helping on the distribution. And I'll also add, you know, some of our buddies in the in the restaurant scene, you know, uh, James Africano, Brent Beavers, uh, some of these folks, you know, they, they experienced a lot of growing pains with us back in the early 2000s when we were trying to do distribution ourselves and making all kinds of mistakes. And so we've come a long way since those early days. And yeah. I would just uh, invite some of those uh, restaurants and independent businesses to take another look at these food hubs and uh, redefine what we can do as a collection of independent businesses. That is the future, in my opinion. If I could just add to that just a little bit, I think that here in Colorado, a lot of people are more outdoor minded, sports focused. One thing that my girlfriend and I did last year was took a trip down to uh, La Junta there's that tarantula migration. And uh, on the way to La Junta, we went through Rocky Ford. We went through some of those smaller towns, and we stopped at farm stands where we found different kinds of melons and different colors and different varieties that were all natural that I had never even seen or heard of before. I've worked all around the country. And I asked some of these farmers, why aren't some of these products making it up to Colorado Springs? We're only two and a half, three hours away. And they said, we are using non-GMO seeds. We're not putting different fertilizers and things like that in the soil to get that longevity to our products because we don't want to sacrifice the flavor. We don't want to sacrifice the quality. And we bought more of this fruit than we could eat when we brought it back. 
But this year, we actually planned uh, a trip in September to go down for a weekend and stay down there. And we're just going to gorge ourselves on on, <laughs> on some of these products because you can't get them here. Yeah, sounds like you should do a class, bring the students, get, get more eaters down there to make sure that this gets supported. And so I think that if people, you know, looked at food the same way that they looked at other recreational activities in Colorado, that would be huge in supporting not only sustainability, but as well as food education and uh, expanding your palate. And Dave, I think it's important to mention too that those farmers that you bought those wonderful products from are in a fight for their life to stay on that farm. Right. Uh, their their prices have been so low for so long, and and it's I think it's a it's by design. I mean, when you look at food policy in America and the full embracing of of industrial food production and and we're going to feed the world mentality and food's got to be cheap and you know it's about corporate agriculture get bigger get out sort of mentality that's that's ingrained in government agencies, regardless of who the president may be. These farmers, the best in the world with the best soils and the clean Arkansas River water have been denied a fair price and market access. Well, what does that mean? Is that very farmer that you are loving their produce is now being forced to sell his water so Colorado Springs can grow bigger and just well beyond the the water resource that's available. Uh, But we have made these farmers willing sellers of the most important thing that they have, and that's their water. Because when you take the water away from an Arkansas Valley farmer, you take away his land because the land can't produce in that dry climate without the water. And so you talk about sustainability. It's out the window when these people are gone because they are absolutely willing to work for nothing, but they can't work at a level where they donate equity every year. Every crop they sell, they sell part of their, of, of their equity in their farm. And, and so these folks, despite all the attention we've had on, on trying to provide sustainability and thinking about resilient food systems, these people are still under pressure and still cannot get enough income at their farm to, to bring the kids back to take over. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think we're seeing something similar even just within the dairy industry, right? I mean, when you look at the generational dairy farming that's been going on for quite some time in this country, I mean, we're losing more and more of those small family farms because they can't compete with the, you know, 100,000 cow dairy farms, right? I mean, that little, you know, family farm of 50, 100, 200 cows just isn't isn't going to be able to produce enough to be able to fill up a tanker quick enough for a large co-op to be able to come pick that up. And just the economics of it no longer makes sense. So you see a lot of the, um, you know, the family farms basically declining pretty significantly mm-hmm. in the country as well, which is, it's, it's awful to see. I mean, even in Colorado, when you look at the milk production, we, we actually make a lot of milk in Colorado. There's a lot of dairy farms in Colorado. But 99% of those dairy farms are all sending their milk to one co-op, you know, the largest co-op in the entire country, Dairy Farmers of America. So when all that milk goes to one giant conglomerate, it goes to their main facilities and, and really all off to all different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So all that milk is is pretty much leaving. I mean, with the exception of a handful of, of folks that process locally, but there's not a ton of them. So a lot of it is leaving. Yeah. And, and DFA has been sued by their own co-op members for mm-hmm. putting them out of business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real thing. <laughs> it gets back to something we touched on earlier in another episode, but 
I blame the eater sometimes. Like we have choices and we don't make them. We could buy the different product with our dollars, but we don't. And I, I get it that not everyone can afford those things. And so this isn't a comment about the, the wealth gap. For those of us who can, for the so many who can, who still make the other choice to buy the lesser than product or the not support the local farmers, not support the independent restaurants, us, the way we spend our dollars is part of the problem. Like, how do we get people to give a shit enough to buy the better things? Well, I think back, uh, you know, 50 years ago when Sam Walton was thinking about Walmart. And, and, and part of that whole process was turning the American citizen into an aggressive price shopping consumer. It really just kind of became the sport of America. You know, they had these car commercials that you should really feel bad if you didn't get the cheapest price. That mentality, the aggressive price shopping consumerism is a fatal, fatal deadly disease. And we've got to stop it. We've got to start thinking about the costs that go into high quality products and resiliency and sustainability. And and otherwise, we're just going to be without here in the country. We are going to consume our resources until there is nothing left. And I'm talking about water, soil, a clean environment, you know, clean air. These big corporate food companies don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. They are mining companies. They are mining the resources. And, and I got to be a part of a film that's called Day Zero, and it's about water all over the globe. But we particularly talk about the Ogallala Aquifer, and it just released on Amazon in the spring. So I'd, I'd recommend for people to watch that. But, but we are really supporting a mining operation when we become an aggressive price shopping consumer. It's wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. We've got to think about you know, the people who produce the food. How is the animal treated? What happened to the environment as a result of this cheap product that I'm consuming? Yep. And sometimes I think that even consumers can be slightly misled when you go into a grocery store and you see a big sign over the apples or something that says local. And you're like, really? Those are local? Where exactly did they come from? Well, earth. you know, earth. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or the made in the USA stamp on the ribeye. I mean, does that have any meaning anymore? I don't know. None whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't <No>. think so. <laughs> as long as it's processed here. Then, exactly, yeah. yeah. Product of the USA label can be That's applied right. to a foreign product on repackaging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's food fraud. It's yeah. food fraud. But mm-hmm. if I put a, something on my label that, that isn't truthful, USDA is going to come after me. But, but USDA supports it for the big processors. They can import product from Brazil, for example. And upon repackaging, put product to the USA, and oh. so consumer hasn't got a clue. I agree with you. I, you know, I think about this consumer choice piece a lot, and it's a tough one. And we know Colorado Springs, in particular, is a tough marketplace. We've got a lot of turnover with the military community there. We've got a lot of newcomers. A lot of people just don't know where they can source these products. And uh, I think it really points to um, alternative models. Again, I mentioned this before with the distribution, but I think it also encapsulates what needs to happen in that retail space. Uh, Mike, for example, has a proposal for a new community market up north of the Springs. These kinds of things that actually bring people together, that aggregate product, that aggregate people, that create communities, this is what's needed. We're going to continue to struggle with these main line supply chains. And so I think our energy would be well put towards developing these alternatives. And you could imagine, for example, you've got the what is it? The um, Pikes Peak Restaurant Association. You've got all these mom and pop independent stores, suppliers like Sawatch, all these family farmers. If, if somehow all of these people were associated into a values-based supply chain, uh, maybe we could uh, gain some ground on this and the consumers could find us more easily. 
So I have a question. With Bill Gates now being the largest owner of farmland in America, how does that affect local production, what you're doing, pricing, quality, and all of that? You know, I think Bill Gates is just really primarily looking for a place to park money. And real estate historically has been a pretty good place to park money. But the other thing I think Bill Gates is seriously misguided on is fake food, thinking fake food is going to be healthier and, and going to save the climate when actually the cow is going to save the climate. The cow grazing correctly on, on pasture lands and cycling carbon and water and putting family farms, the stewards really of our earth, back on the farm is going to be key to saving the climate. It's, it's not Bill Gates's model that will save our climate at all. In fact, it will take us the other opposite direction. The question ought to really be, why are so many farmers willing sellers to Bill Gates? And that's the real problem. And the reason these people are willing sellers is because they're unable to earn a living income when they have to sell through a basic food cartel monopoly structure to the consumer. And you're saying that goes back to the Cisco and U.S. food model? Absolutely. But combined with the big meat packers, the big processors, you know, the Tyson, Cargill, JBS, Marfrig National. It's the Pilgrim's Pride, which is also owned by JBS. We've got these global predators that have put together a cartel with their retail partners and distribution partners to where they're controlling everything from the producer all the way to the consumer and extracting maximum wealth. And they've got such great market power, there's nothing left for the farmer that's really got the big investment and takes the biggest risks. And so we're losing these farmers. We're making willing sellers out of the stewards of our land. And this is a big mistake. From my side, you know, some of my concerns is that these, these small family farmers, they're not going to be able to sustain that, right? I mean, some of these initiatives will bankrupt them. And we're going to continue to lose more and more of those small family farms by default. We design our food system in America to feed the world, right? The rest of the world doesn't necessarily do that for us. When you go over to certain places, let's say in Europe, we always come back as Americans and we talk about the amazing food experiences we have and all of the great things that we got to eat and enjoy, depending on where we went. And you see people visiting our country and all they talk about is our national parks. <laughs> so, you know, I think that we have a lot of opportunity to perhaps less focus on feeding the world and how do we just maintain what we have here, you know, and maintain our family farms. But the consumer, you know, it's, it's tough. They're not necessarily 100% on board with supporting that. When you buy your ribeye that says product of the USA because it's on sale for $2.99 a pound at your local retail grocery store, and you're like, well, that will do. But I think it really starts with making different choices and, and trying the best that you can to support that, you know, in, every, in whatever way you can. Dan? In some ways, I think, you know, the more they push this industrial envelope, the more we have an opening to do an alternative. They cannot compete with us on the community level. They cannot compete with us on the flavor level, on the benefits to the local economy. They just can't compete with us. If we as independents can come together and move to a new level, I think there's a future there, but it's going to take a lot of work to get people together. But the stakes are high for this industrial system. I mean, this, this obesity and uh, diabetes epidemic that we have is going to only get worse the more people eat this stuff. And so there may be some um, health reasons that people also find us, you know, as alternative suppliers and, and farmers and ranchers. You know, Matt, I, I ran into the most pleasant person. Her name was Lindsay. It was at the Lincoln School. 
and Lindsay's operating an establishment there. So I'm talking to Lindsay. I just getting to know her. She's she's been buying from Ranch Foods, and I was happy. Well, thank you very much. And and so I get to talking to her, and she's discussing you know what she eats, and she said, well, we don't buy any food from any grocery store. We raise or produce our own food. She said, we just slaughtered 400 chickens this morning on our farm. And she says, we have our own cow. And I'm thinking, no way. You've got your own cow. And I think she (laughs) said they had five acres out at Peyton. And I said, oh, wow, that, that's a, I have, I don't hardly know anyone like that anymore. You know, Jim Smith with High Plains Dairy produces the raw milk that I drink every week. But here, this young lady with a nine-year-old child and a husband get up every morning and they milk the cow before they go to building three and serve coffee to the public and prepare food in their restaurant in the Lincoln Center. And I was just blown away. That is the coolest story ever. We've got to get that out because it is possible. And I get more and more calls all the time now as people become more aware of how broken the food system is. What can we do? What can we do? Is there any room at St. Francis, Kansas to move out there? And and I say, well, you know, you better be able to make a living on the internet, you know. Uh, (laughs) But people are starting to get more concerned and, but honestly, the answer is to support the people that are actually doing it. Oh, and then there's uh, Jen that sells her produce at the coffee merchants every Saturday morning. She's got a beautiful table of food that she makes available for that community over there on Fillmore. Mm-hmm. And then when at the end of the day, with everything didn't sell, she brings that to Ranch Foods Direct and we sell it for her. So you get just get back to community. Like yeah. Dan said, let's build the infrastructure to build community again, but build it around food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much credit will you give me for my five backyard ducks that I have? Oh, you got all, <laughs> okay. big time. Because I, yeah. I, get, I get my eggs. Yeah. That's, it's about ten, ten, <laughs> 10 feet from where I grew Dan's garlic. I've got my ducks. I just wanted to get some cred from Mike. I think that's awesome. It's Way not a go, cow, Matt. but yeah, Way exactly. Thank you. I feel so much better yeah. this morning. Um, <laughs> I want to wrap us up. Is there anything we didn't touch on? I, we could probably do this for five more hours because everything you guys are talking about is super important. And for people like me that are suffering from constant eco dread, there's reinforcement of that with like, holy shit, we have a lot of problems to solve. But there's also some hopeful notes you've offered. And I love some of the solutions you were talking about with the food hubs. And these are actionable things that we all could be a part of with what we buy, with where we shop, with where we go out to eat. The messages we send to chefs and restaurateurs about what we want to see on their menus, creating that resistance against the big ag, against these big distributors who are doing these predatory things. So there's a lot of hope in that, too. You know, Matt, we talk about big ag and these big ag companies standing between producers and consumers and and denying the market access. But one of the things Dan said about the project that we're looking at at Monument to put this sort of uh, food market center collaborative in place is finding a solution for the independent restaurateur, the independent cheesemaker, the independent bread baker, the meat market shop, the, the carcass processor, the, you know, the, the, the guy that makes the cider. So all of that, where could they co-locate where they could really get the synergy of being together? Because honestly, in Colorado Springs, the independent businessman has the same problem as the farmer. When you're dealing with developers in Colorado Springs, rent collectors that just maximize the rents, there, I, I had a young man tell me here the other day, he said, I cannot afford to pay my rent downtown in these new apartments and eat. I can't do both. And I think we've got to find solutions here to the big developer 
mentality that maximizes rents. And I want to see home ownership. Why are the Black Rocks and the, and the big investment firms, the, the, the private equity firms, buying up all these houses just to keep them off the market, to drive rents higher and to drive home prices higher? We need home ownership. It's equity that you build. Every time you make a mortgage payment, you, make, you build equity. And by the time you're ready to retire in a business, what if you could do that for your restaurant? At the end, you've owned that real estate, and so now you've got something to pass on to maybe some employees or your kids. But we get out of that deadly cycle of concentrated power and wealth in the hands of a few. And in Colorado Springs, I think it's most prevalent that we've got a handful of developers that are maximizing rents and making it very expensive to do business here. I've got one food business in particular that I've got in mind whose rent went from 1600 a month to 5600 a month. Hmm. You can't make it. You're just working for the man. And, and of course, when it's a national chain type enterprise, they can externalize those costs. So the McDonald's, the Burger Kings, the, the Starbucks, they can externalize those costs either by paying their workers less or by buying raw materials for less, pay less for the cattle. Tell Tyson, we've got to buy cheaper ground beef, you know, more pink slime, whatever. They can externalize those costs where a small businessman with the, with the integrity and the desire to serve really good, healthy, high-quality food cannot do that. And so I think we've also got to look at where else wealth is concentrated. Mm-hmm. You know, we always said concentration of power and wealth is the greatest threat to any free society. I just don't know how you get it more concentrated than it is today. So let's build a model that does a better job of making sure everybody in it does well. I would like to say something similar to what Mike just said, but I'm going to say it that more pertains to my model, and this is not a a shameless plug for Gather, but I think that we're seeing a lot of of shift into at-home meal kits. And... The marketing on these at-home meal kits is phenomenal because, you know, it's tricking you into thinking you're cooking your own food and you're getting closer to the recipes, which in turn gets you closer to the producers, but it doesn't. And all it is is a way for you to pay the same amount of money to cook at home as it is to going out. And you're not developing these relationships with food producers. All you're doing is is having somebody cut your food and, and ship it to you, and you're just assembling it at home. And so when you go to local places, independent restaurants or cooking schools, for example, and you're able to get in touch with these local products and you're able to you know, meet these local producers and actually having a chance to experience these products and then using them at home. But also learning how to do these things yourselves. You know, we do knife skills classes almost every month and people don't know how to cut a pineapple. But it's learning how to do these things on your own instead of having people do them for you and trick you into thinking that you're doing this all by yourself. Anything else from Jennifer or Dan in closing? No, I think just to kind of echo that and on our, on our side, you know, we are definitely really focusing even this year just on how do we continue to serve our restaurant community strong and to be able to be there to support them, you know, during these these times of obviously, you know, your food costs and your logistics and your distribution costs have gone up pretty much just across the board. We know our restaurant community is living on pretty thin margins as it is. And so from our standpoint, you know, we're constantly trying to figure out how do we continue to bring the best product at the best price? You know, what do we need to do logistically to help 
that become a reality to help be able to provide fresher products. So, for example, like queso fresco, we're the only local producers of queso fresco in this region of the country. Everything, for the most part, is coming out of California. So by the time it gets on that truck, gets to your restaurant, you're about a week, week and a half in on that queso fresco, whereas our model is you get it within a couple of days. And so there's a huge difference in the freshness and quality, but the challenge is how do we get it there? And how do we get restaurants using it at a price point that they can afford? I think that'll continue to be the challenge, but I think as we continue to work with more of our fellow local producers, that we can find continued solutions like the Food uh, Village Hub and other food hubs locally to be able to provide that to okay. the restaurants and consumer. Anything else from you, Dan? Yeah, just to summarize, I think the future is independent businesses cooperating from the farmers to the distributors to the stores and the restaurants. And once we can get to a higher level of uh, integration with all of our business activity, you can imagine educational efforts flowing out of that a little more easily. And also, I think there's probably an important policy component here, whether it's local, state and or national. You know, when you have a group of independent people working together, you can have some influence. And the organization I work with, Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, has an amazing grassroots policy platform, which is set every fall in the month of November when the farmers come together. And that might be a place to start or at least one other tool in the box. Thank you, everyone, for your insights. Just super appreciate all the perspectives about how to fix this broken, broken system. So this was State of Plate and my guests, Jennifer Gomez, David Cook, Mike Calicrate, and Dan Hobbs. Thanks, everybody. Here we are at the end. I want to rethink State of Plate's entire guest list. Shane Lyons, Jared Boyer, Brent Beers, Jay Gust, James Africano, Chantal Lucas, Hannah Couples, Ian Diedrichson, Brother Luck, Eric Brenner, Noah Siebenaller, Mike Calicrate, David Cook, Jennifer Gomez, and Dan Hobbs. And specific to the focus of this episode, I want to shout out the Palmer Land Conservancy's inaugural Southern Colorado Local Food Guide, just recently published. You can download the community resource for free at palmerland.org and find a list of area food producers. Thanks also to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Please tell your friends about this podcast. We'd love your feedback, especially if you have a different perspective on anything we've said. You can comment on my social media pages as well as the CSNDs. Find links in our show notes or search us by name. State of Plate was written and co-produced by me, Matthew Schnipper, in partnership with the Colorado Springs Indie and Dave Gardner, who also did our editing. Art design by Elena Trapp. Digital support by Sean Cassidy. Cheers to Hug Speaks Lauren Hug, as well as Shane Lyons for consulting on the show. And special thanks to publisher and executive editor of the Colorado Springs Indie, Amy Gillentine, for greenlighting this podcast. Thank you.